Hello and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Masori and this week I'm joined as ever by my co-host Luke Tiverton. Luke, hi. Hi, John. Regular listeners will note that there's no uh, Dr. Misha Jervis today, um, but fear not. Um, despite the fact that it's it's me and Luke in the hot seat for this episode, um, we've got a really interesting, uh, really interesting topic to to go through. Um, but before we do that, uh, a little bit of a little bit of admin. Um, so our regular shout out to the podcast partners, uh, Sporting Bounce and the Set Pieces. So um, Sporting Bounce is the the online directory for, for sports performance. It's um it's managed by by former guest of the show, Professor Mark Jones. And the set pieces is a website which is part of the Guardian's sports network and holds some first rate opinion on all things football. So yeah, now um we've got the got the admin out of the way. Luke, we've got, yeah, I just said we've got a really, really interesting topic to to get our teeth into today, haven't we? Yeah, I could almost hear the collective disappointment amongst the listenership uh, when you announced that Misha wasn't <laughs> joining us for this show. Uh, but as you say, uh, you, you've been busy, John. Uh, I had an article published on the BBC Sport website recently about the psychology or the psychologist that worked with the World Cup winning Brazil team from 1958. Fascinating story. Listeners can find that on the, on the homepage of the BBC Sport website under their kind of longer read section. It's called Football Psychology Pioneer and his controversial Pele analysis. John, how did you first come across this story? And do you want to give us a brief overview of, of the research that you did into what was actually quite an unknown story until you did the, the work that you did? Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose as with all good journalism, it was it was derivative to, to, some, <laughs> to some extent. So back in, I think it was November from the 2020, we interviewed Simon Clifford, who um, is the former head of sports science at Southampton. Uh, and during that interview, he mentioned that uh, the 1958 Brazil World Cup winning team had a psychologist, which really kind of hit home because, um, as we've talked about a number of times on this show, there are a lot of elite teams currently without a dedicated performance psychologist. So I've I, I looked into this, it's been a bit of a, a labour of love over the last kind of six to kind of six to eight months, uh, reaching out to kind of various people in in Brazil, uh, Australia at one point to try and track down a few people that uh, had published academic papers on on Professor Jao Carvalhas and, and and his work. Uh, and the article is the kind of culmination of of that of that research. Uh, yeah, I mean in short, he is he's the first World Cup winning psychologist. So as as Luke mentioned earlier, he accompanied the, the 1958 Brazil squad to to Sweden. Uh, he was with the team before the tournament uh, and with the team during the tournament. And as the title of the article suggests, the the, the kind of saga that, that dominated that period of, of his life was the fact that that he certainly, according to Pele, anyway, recommended that Pele and Garincha shouldn't be picked for the third game of of the World Cup. And obviously, Pele Pele went on to score six goals in four games and in that World Cup and was kind of catapulted to stardom. So, so a lot of what's online, there's not very much, a lot of what's online about uh, Professor Carvajas is kind of concentrated on on that part of his his life. But what we're kind of go, going to go into today in a bit more detail is, is actually what he did with the with the team, um, which was really, which is really interesting uh, and groundbreaking, frankly. You know, there, there wasn't a psychologist out there doing this at the time. So we'll talk a little bit more about the the kind of tests that he conducted, the access that he had to the team, and hopefully kind of give listeners a 
you know, an understanding of, yeah, of kind of what a really remarkable um, guy this Professor Carvajas was. And I suppose, John, you know, going back to the beginning here, setting the context for that 1958 World Cup from a Brazilian perspective, um, you know, Lots of people will be familiar with how successful, you know, the Brazil team of Grinch and Pele. And, you know, obviously Pele then had kind of won three of four World Cups from from, from that point onwards. But coming into the 1958 World Cup, Brazil was very much um, a team that felt they had something to lose, you could say. So the 1950 World Cup, they'd lost in the final 2-0 to Uruguay at the Maracanã. So, you know, basically at the home of football, as far as Brazilians are concerned, that was a, a result that sparked... You know, not even a day of mourning, almost years of mourning, uh, and 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 gave Brazilian football this whole kind of crisis of confidence for for a long period of time afterwards. They then were knocked out of the 1954 World Cup, uh, that kind of infamous 4-2 loss to Hungary, which became known as the the Battle of Bern, and it was very much kind of a a physical shutdown of the Brazilian way of playing football. And and so coming into the 1958 World Cup, there's a huge amount of pressure on the Brazilian FA to perform, huge amount of pressure on the players. But also, uh, you know, a feeling that there's something to prove, but something to lose, maybe, you know, an- another tragedy. Could the Brazilian public have taken that in 1958? So so there's kind of a lot of angst going into the World Cup for, for Brazil at that time. So the idea of bringing in psychologists is, is really interesting against that backdrop. Yeah, it, it is. It's almost as though they had nothing to lose or, or that they were prepared to take any any kind of risks that they needed to in order, yeah, in order to kind of to really salvage pride I suppose after the 50 and 54 kind of debacles because yeah you know I, I spoke to to Simon Clifford again he features in the in the article that, that Luke mentioned earlier and you know he is uh, he's a real expert on on you know Brazilian football and and just 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 said that you know as Luke was talking about not not only was it kind of a uh, well not only was there an outpouring of emotion after the the, the defeat in 1950, but that that really had an effect on kind of Brazilian psyche right up the way into to 1958. So yeah, so the Brazilian FA they, they really kind of take this pretty remarkable um, gamble on a guy who is a he's a trained psychologist, but um, he he only enters football in 19 professional football in 1950 and 57. So he joins uh, joins Sao Paulo in that in that year, and basically they had found uh, or kind of scouted him. Uh, a uh, uh, at the the city's football federation, so he was there uh, training referees, basically getting them ready for life in in professional football. And he he basically built this this psychology laboratory with with kind of ten cognitive tests um, kind of inside it. So that meant that that kind of tested stuff like reaction times, depth perception. Um, they had this going on, uh, and Sao Paulo picked up on it. He brought him in, um, and the team then won their first state title in in four years. Um, and after the, I think it was after a a match um, in the run in. Uh, after that match, the directors kind of came out and said basically that Carvajal was really instrumental in the decision to to drop a particular player because of because of, of psychological issues, uh, replaced them with with, uh, with someone from the sub-bench and uh, that person then went on to kind of perform really, really well. And so he had this kind of influence on selection at, at Sao Paulo that was seen as really positive. And yeah, as we were talking about, I think the Brazilian FA kind of looked at that and thought, well, why not? You know, let's bring this, let's bring this guy in. So he joins the technical committee of the Brazilian uh, Football Federation in, in 1958 and in the run-up to the World Cup, uh, during kind of a pre-tournament camp, 
he he puts the the Brazilian players through these these series of of basically kind of like psychometric tests. So they were uh, or kind of are known as kind of army alpha and beta tests. So they're adapted adapted from tests the US conducted in the run up to the First World War to kind of ascertain the the, the kind of level of intelligence uh, of, of potential recruits. So the alpha test is basically an arithmetic and, and vocabulary test, and the beta test is 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 kind of a different version of that for people that are you know that point were kind of regarded as, as less literate. Um, so you'd basically, be kind of completing half-drawn pictures or kind of tracing mazes, and this all sounds you know <clears throat> this all sounds frankly a little bit a little bit dated when you when you when you look at it in isolation. But I think the important thing to kind of remember as we're going through some of this stuff is that. One, this is this is 1958. Um, two, actually, some of the some of the work that or some of the tests testing that he was doing, you'd still see, albeit in a slightly different context, in scenarios now. So, I mean, I I was I remember when in a former life I, I worked as a recruitment consultant, and there was an investment bank that we worked with who conducted psychometric tests during their recruitment process, and clearly they were different. In character, but they, they weren't a million miles away from from what he was doing back then. So I don't think we should kind of look at that and kind of think, oh, you know, it's it's kind of slightly humdrum. It, 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 it did carry some some real credibility, I think. And I suppose, John, it's worth pointing out probably you know what we consider sports psychology with the guests that we speak to on this show on a regular basis. You know, some of the stuff you're talking about there, with it being psychometric testing, it is more kind of cognitive um, testing. It's not psychology in, in necessarily in, in the purest sense of what we would what we would talk about now. But it does show an awareness of, uh, you know, the mental side of the game. And I think I think probably that's where this is pioneering from the Brazilian FA's point of view, which is to say, actually, we can do all of this based on fitness, based on strength, based on performance, based on kind of skill and, and all of the kind of regular attributes in football. But it's them taking a step back and saying, OK, this guy, albeit over a limited period of time with Sao Paulo, has come in and opened up a new horizon for kind of performance, which is focused on the mind. Um, and, and that's probably the important thing about the the gamble, if you like, that they're taking. And I guess, like you said, it's either them saying, well, well there's an opportunity here that we, we don't want to miss because we, we, you know, we want to be successful in 1958. But it's also a risk, isn't it? Because it, it could upset the balance of a, what is probably a squad under a, a fair degree of pressure going into that tournament. Yeah, I mean, and the interesting thing is, you know, it did it did kind of backfire backfire to, to some extent, or at least led to a pretty interesting series of events. So basically, in the run up to the tournament, the um, the results from these tests leaked to the to the media. Um, I mean, I cannot imagine if you're in Carvalho's shoes at that point, the pressure that you would have been under would have been absolutely immense. I mean, if you kind of think about kind of a modern day scenario where. England bringing a psychologist, and on the eve of the World Cup, he pub- the, the, the psychometric tests that they've been running are published, and suddenly you've got splashed over every national newspaper. Harry Kane's psychometric results. I mean, you would just, uh, yeah, it really does kind of beg a belief, actually. And I suppose the most worrying thing about that is, given the most important thing for a psychologist working in any any kind of context or any environment, is that whatever happens between a psychologist and a, and a and an individual is that it's it's private. It's there has to be that you know the relationship doesn't work unless it's completely based on trust and and it's secure. So that suddenly being splashed over a press that's probably quite quite kind of anxious about the World Cup. Yeah, I can imagine that would have been. I mean, I, 
hopefully the tabloid press in 1958 wasn't quite what it is today. But, you know, I can imagine that caused all sorts of eruptions within the squad. Yeah, and he was, by all accounts, you know, he was absolutely mortified um, by it. So there was speculation that that Gorincha would be would be dropped, wouldn't even make the World Cup squad on the back of this because, yeah, and this is borne out in interviews with with teammates you know his his kind of level of literacy was 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 kind of fairly low um and yeah and then there was yeah, there was real kind of real worry that he wouldn't even make the squad um he did along with along with Pele um and so they they go to they go to Sweden and Carvajas kind of continues to 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 work um to work with so with the squad again you know using really kind of quite interesting methods so he, um, whilst they're in Sweden, uh, runs a series of uh, myokinetic psychodiagnosis tests, so MKP tests, and basically, in in layman's terms, you know that. And, and I again count myself very much this very much in this category. Um, yeah, they're basically based on the idea that expressive muscle movements can help to indicate an individual's temperament. So you know, they were basically the squad were given kind of blank pieces of paper and asked to kind of draw what came to came to mind um, and he was then he was then uh, analyzing those those drawings to try and kind of define individual characteristics of various squad members um, and so it comes to the third game of the tournament Pele and Gurincha up, up until that point haven't played because they're injured um, but then they are come the third game in a position to play and according to Pele in his autobiography it's probably worth reading this out in full actually the the following happens. So this is kind of taken directly from, from Pele's autobiography. He says, he says, as part of our preparations, the team psychologist, Professor João Carvalhas, has conducted tests on all the players. We had to draw sketches to people and answer questions to help João make assessments about whether we should be picked or not. It was either ahead of its time for football or just odd, or maybe both. About me, he concluded that I should not be selected. And again, this is Pele's Pele's kind of version of events. So he said, Pele says that Kavaya said, Pele is obviously infantile. He lacks the necessary fighting spirit. He also advised against Garincha, who was not as seen as responsible enough. Fortunately for me and Garincha, Vicente uh, Fiola, Brazil's manager, was always guided by his instincts. And he just nodded gravely at the psychologist saying, you may be right. The thing is, you don't know anything about football. If Pele's knee is ready, he plays. And he did. Uh, fortunately for Brazil, because he... <laughs> And went on to score six goals in in four games, which I think was kind of back to what we were talking about uh, at the start. That kind of you know, in hindsight, kind of suggests that Carvajal was, and you know, some of the articles, the, the very short articles been written about him, um, have kind of seen him as a bit of a laughing stock. But th- it wasn't inevitable that this was going to happen. That Pele was going to go on and score six goals in four games. It is an interesting part of the story because, you know, given what we know about history and hindsight is a wonderful thing, clearly that advice, you know, for both, you know, certainly Pele, uh, but obviously Garincha as well, clearly that advice is, is, is completely, you know, the wrong advice. But actually, if you break it down into its constituent parts, what you've got is a 17-year-old player being thrust into a very, very highly pressurised situation for a country where the levels of expectation are back home, and bearing in mind we're English, uh, you know, these are levels of expectation that even we probably can't even imagine in 1958 uh, from, from the Brazilian public at large, let alone the, the public that are interested in football. And essentially what your psychologist is saying is, 
possibly this this might not you know this 17 year old guy it might not be the best uh, time to to you know he had played for brazil before the before that world cup but he didn't have tons of caps and he was clearly a very talented player but you know you when you break it down into its constituent parts like that maybe there's an element of this you know where you can sort of see maybe what, what, where he's coming from with it and you know as you said i think like 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 all the psychologists we speak to you know you, you can kind of pass advice on to the manager and you can pass advice on to players, but it is, it is up to those people to, to decide what they do with it and, and whether they kind of, you know, it, you're, you're just one of the, one of the tools in the cupboard, I suppose, in that sense, in terms of helping people. And, and it, it's kind of up to them how they use the advice that you give them. And I suppose in this particular example, the collective kind of squad decision was to go ahead with the selection and, and it proved to be the right one, but, but that doesn't necessarily completely undermine the advice from, uh, from the psychologist necessarily. No, absolutely not. Uh, and, you know, I will talk a little bit about <clears throat> the impact that kind of Cavazos' work has um, a little bit later. But, I mean, just as a little bit of a teaser from that, you know, Gilmar, his Brazilian goalkeeper in that, that squad, came out afterwards and said, you know, Cavazos gave us the chance to take on ideas that could improve our performance. He said, after the tournament, we realised that it, it had worked. And I... I'd struggle to kind of name, you know, there are some examples that, that I think, you know, you could find, but, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd struggle to kind of name um, testimony that glowing about a World Cup winning psychologist. You know, that, 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 that is real evidence that his methods, some of them did, did work um, anyway. And his, his level of access uh, to that, that team, I think is, is another thing that's really interesting. You know, he was, there are pictures of this. You know, he was on the pitch with them celebrating after after that 1958 World Cup final win. Um, you know, running around with the Brazilian flag in hand. You know, there was a clear bond there. You know, it's clear clear bond between player and players and psychologists. So, whatever you think about the kind of merits of the testing and you know that advice, yeah, there's evidence to suggest that yeah, his methods were were, were effective. And that's interesting in its own right, John, isn't it? Because, like you said, when you read about some of the some of the methods, that, that they do seem primitive. And as you said, you and I are essentially laymen on this. You know, I'm sure uh, you know trained psychologists that listen to this podcast are probably listening to some of the examples that you've given and are thinking, where, where on earth would you ever do something like that now as a psychologist? Obviously, you wouldn't. But there is something quite. The, I, I I actually find one of the most interesting things about this story, as you said, it's the access. We talked to Misha quite a lot around, you know, she's very passionate about the fact that a psychologist shouldn't just be sat in the office waiting to summon players in to kind of speak to them. That a psychologist's role, you know, her role at Wickham, for example, is to be in and around the the squad. And and that means that means everywhere. That means training, that means the whole kind of, you know, and and and, and there's no limit to where you can kind of pop up and, and do your work. And you do get that impression, like you said, certainly looking at some of the pictures, that he had that kind of access, which in 1958, given that there are clubs turning over millions of pounds now who still don't let psychologists have that kind of access, even despite all of the kind of advances in our understanding of what sports psychology can achieve, not just from football, but from across a lot of sports. It is astounding that that that, that, that happened. And it, and, it, and it is pioneering in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, def- def- definitely. And I, I think, so we'll kind of come to his, his legacy in a minute, but I, I think that I think the the slightly sad thing actually is that it 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 wasn't acknowledged to to a degree by um by the Brazilian FA. So basically, after the fifty eight World Cup, he kind of comes back. Uh, there's some 
kind of ill feeling basically between him and I think the vice president of Brazilian FA from, from memory kind of basically kind of doesn't, he, 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 there's not kind of explicit criticism, he definitely doesn't back him or kind of suggest that he had, you know, a, a kind of a role to play in the, the World Cup success. Um, so then Carvalho basically returns to Sao Paulo um, to, the, to the football team in, in 1958 and continues to work there until 1974. Um, so yeah, he, at that point as well, I think kind of reflected on some of the work that he'd done at the World Cup in Sweden. Um, so he, he introduced in individual counselling sessions for players at um, Sao Paulo. So I think probably kind of from, again, from kind of looking looking at footage um, online, so there's a really good, uh, really good video documentary that people can access. I'll, I'll try and post a, a link in the show notes, actually. So from, from kind of testimony from his family, yeah, he did. He did reflect on what he'd done well and badly in in Sweden, in his in, in his eyes, and kind of you know took took steps to to kind of remedy that you know the, the things that he, he didn't think he'd done that that well. Um, so yeah, continued to work up at Sao Paulo until seventy four, and then um, yeah, unfortunately passed away in, in nineteen seventy six. Um, so. A lot of the kind of the the, the testimony is, is is kind of very reflective actually. In that video, you know, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of footage of his his family kind of now proudly looking back on some you know some some real achievements. But I think at the, at the time it was actually quite hard for them because in Brazil, as I said, there was wasn't immediately an acceptance uh, of of the value of the work that he'd done. Although interestingly. Um, he got loads of recognition from abroad. So, you know, pretty much magazines from Spain, France, Germany came calling after the, the World Cup um, to kind of in, get, get interviews with him and, and Sports Illustrated um, put a, kind of highlighted his contribution to, to, the, to the World Cup, which kind of suggests that there is something to kind of think about there in terms of his, his impact on the, you know, on the wider kind of world of, of sports psychology. But it's it's indicative of the the sort of same thing that we come across again and again, isn't it? Like you know, it, it must have been, and, th- and the fact that the Brazilian FA even kind of stepped away from it after the success of the tournament, that process of kind of having to convince other people in football of the the, the worth of a psychologist working in that setup and working in that way, it, you know, it's it's kind of all it's an ongoing battle, isn't it? It's it's not one that's completely that's completely um, over the line even in 2022. So it's it's kind of hardly surprising. I mean, I actually think uh, that, that some of the research that you did into his work at Sao Paulo, okay, being involved with that that World Cup win in 1958 is clearly you know a massive achievement and and that's the the crowning kind of sporting achievement. But some of the stuff you said around introducing counselling to a, a a football team in the 60s and 70s, I mean. The concept of counselling back then for, for anybody in a workplace uh, or, or, or sporting setting is is quite groundbreaking. So, you know, it, it is interesting that throughout his career, and, and that is a much more kind of what we would consider to be a more psychological kind of focus than probably some of the cognitive testing that he did with the Brazilian national team. So that legacy is quite interesting. And, and that kind of comes from some of the stuff, you know, where you first picked up this story, John, was Simon in his career in the in in the 90s was kind of very passionate about the fact that he always felt brazilian football was slightly further ahead of, of the curve you know he talks a lot about doesn't he about when janinho first came to middlesbrough in the premier league around how he was shocked at the at the fact that you know playing in the premier league with all the money that it had the kind of setup they had around you know 
training, conditioning, psychology was 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 light years behind what he'd been used to when he was playing in Brazil. And and I guess it, we sometimes forget, don't we? Now that we, you know, this weekend's a great example of everyone sitting around and talking about how the Premier League is the best in the world and Man City versus Liverpool, they're the two best teams in the world. And we kind of have that very kind of that that thing where we're a little bit, you know what's the word we, we, we probably look down on South, South American league football now and club football but there was a time when it was it was genuinely leading the way in terms of its approaches to thing and this is a, a fantastic example of that yeah I mean there's no there's no evidence that I've seen suggest that in European football anything really kind of uh, predated the emergence of of the mine room at AC yeah, Milan yeah. Um, regular listeners <laughs> chuckling at, at, at that being shoehorned in <laughs> to a conversation about Brazilian football. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, that was in the 1980s. That was in, you know, 30 years later. Um, yeah, nothing I've come across that suggests that there was anything, um, certainly in European football, maybe, you know, it's quite an interesting thing to look at. So maybe um, maybe in Eastern Europe, maybe in, 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 in the Soviet Union, um, yep. there were kind of, uh, you know, there, there are kind of things underway, but uh, yeah, nothing in European football. And it, it is interesting that all of the, you know, you talk about some of the the media attention that uh, Professor Carvaya's work got uh, from the from the '58 World Cup. It, it, it does it does feel like it was almost looked at as a bit of a novelty though that was probably where the interest came from the media and it was never something that was necessarily pounced upon by anybody in in, in football setups across Europe to say oh right actually maybe we could replicate something like this because clearly it's successful it was yeah it, 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 I, that's the impression I got from the from the way you described it yeah I completely agree with that um and I, th- I think you know the, the, the other thing that's kind of really interesting about this kind of whole episode is that you know I talked about the quote from from Gilmar that yeah, Nilsson Santos came out after the tournament and said the team learned to enter the pitch smiling um, as a result of kind of Carvalho's work. And I, again, like you will see interviews with successful teams um, that, that kind of reference the work of a psychologist. That 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 is you know that, that that's out there and, and kind of in the public domain. But two World Cup winners coming out and saying that about us, like I think that's such that's so powerful. You imagine that kind of happening now um, and think about kind of what a boom that would be for, you know, the profession at large. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And that, and that does nod towards some of the, some of the benefits of sport psychology and psychologists working in football that, that we've seen in the modern day, isn't it? It's, you know, there's all the stuff around the, the like we talk about the slightly primitive cognitive testing, but actually you've got a world cup winning player of, of huge renown saying we learned to enter the pitch smiling. Well, that's against the backdrop of all the pressure that was on the team, you know, uh, nationally based on the, the, the failures at the, the previous two world cups. So you, you, you do kind of get the impression that the, the psychologist is working behind this team to say, right, well, we need to learn to kind of separate that, you know, and, and then, and then you start to think, well, it's all of those things that we're used to talking about, which is control, control what you can control um, about the, culture of the team and kind of you know you know a, a happy culture and a and, and that will relieve pressure um and, and actually just kind of people entering the pitch and saying right we know what we can do and we're going to go out and express ourselves and we're going to kind of separate all that other kind of negativity that's kind of sitting on our shoulders you, you do kind of start to see that that's the the fundamentals of sports psychology isn't it um so it's, I, I found those quotes from some of the other members of the squad it's interesting you know Pele has clearly got a bit of an axe to grind in terms of his personal um, experience of working with with Carvajas, but certainly the testimony from those other players suggests that there were some of the more traditional kind of psychological benefits being being felt by that team. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely, I completely agree, and I, I think it's, it's, yeah, one, of, one of the things that was so nice about writing that that story was that I did feel, and you know, spoke to a professor in in Brazil who did quite a bit of research on Cavaz. I did feel as though, you know, there was an element to which we were able to kind of just just address some of the some of the things that had been really kind of taken out of context a little bit. As I said, there were yeah. probably kind of three or four pieces on on him but I mean really just talking about Pe- the, the decision to drop Pele and really just quoting Pele's perception from from his autobiography um so it was it was it was nice to kind of be able to say well actually there's a, there's a lot more to this guy than 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 that um and yeah and as I said you know huge thanks to Professor uh Fernando Waini in uh Sao Paulo who really kind of helped me with um with the research he was uh, actually absolutely fantastic in, in kind of putting this together and I suppose, you know, you, you mentioned legacy of uh, Professor João Carvalhas earlier. We had a conversation before we started recording around how the legacy is quite hard to trace because he kind of stops working with the with the Brazilian national team, goes back to Sao Paulo, gets a little bit of traction with the international media rather than the Brazilian media. But that is kind of where it ends. And it's not like suddenly he's invited to kind of share his ideas with other academics working in Europe or other, other sporting setups in Europe. But our feeling was that legacy-wise... It's about that thing, isn't it? Around successful teams are the ones that look for look for the gains where where they where they where they might not know they exist, and 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 it's a good you know that Brazil team becomes the dominant force in international football for pretty much the best part of the next two decades, um, and arguably you know much longer than that in terms of uh, in terms of you know the status that Brazilian football still has, and and it's about the fact that it's pushing the boundaries, searching for gains in kind of areas where nobody else is looking. It, the legacy of this is that that's what all the best teams do. We talked about AC Milan in the 80s and 90s. We talk about the top teams in the Premier League now, the Liverpools and the Man Cities of this world, uh, are not not looking for what they can gain from having a psychologist in, on board. It's the Manchester United, perhaps, that are suddenly like, oh, maybe we should do this. So, you know, it, it, the legacy of this is that successful teams and successful athletes are open to these ideas of how they can improve. And the Gilmar quote says that, doesn't it? He, like, he opened our, our eyes to ideas that can improve our performance. And that's what the top players are, are open to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it goes, goes back to, to kind of that, that Bruno Dimicalis quote that we've, we always reference because it's, it's, it's such a good, you know, it's such a good quote that the best players, they want to learn. It's the average player that hides from this kind of this kind of work. So yeah, I no, I I can completely um I completely agree with that. Um, and I guess it I guess it's the thing as well where successful teams, just to take that on a step further, successful yeah. teams are, are curious about this kind of thing rather than threatened by it. So if you want to be the best, you're curious about the possibility, not kind of threatened about what could go wrong. And and, and actually, like, you know, as we've discussed, in 1958, a number of events conspired that could have made this a huge disaster. Uh, but 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 it but it but it worked out. Yeah, it would have been interesting, you know, just there wasn't a lot actually about the Brazilian FA's reaction to the to the fact that the results were leaked before um, before the World Cup. I yeah pure speculation but I do wonder if that had any any kind of in, kind of impact on on their reluctance to talk about things post post tournament and actually you know praise Cavaliers for some of the good work that, that he did I mean I can't imagine what the FA's reaction would be <laughs> imagine the FA's reaction they hire a psychologist and then suddenly the, the results were leaked to, to the media I and mean, I cannot imagine the, the PR department at the FA being uh, kind of particularly understanding of that I think the interesting thing, though, is probably the fact that his work isn't as well known. Probably, you know, the leaking of those results 
probably he's been consigned a little bit to the as it to, to the kind of the footnote to history in terms of Brazilian football, probably because that whole episode doesn't fit the narrative that then followed the win in 1958. Because as you said, you alluded to at the beginning, and I don't know if anybody's seen the the Pele documentary, which is I'd really, really recommend it. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, not the Pele film shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, uh, confused with that, which is frankly quite underwhelming and has some of the worst kind of football scenes in it that I, I think I've ever seen. But the Pele documentary, which talks a lot about, you know, obviously it focuses on Pele, the individual, but it talks a lot about the context in Brazilian football and indeed Brazilian politics. It, it, it's really, really interesting that once they win that World Cup, Pele just becomes the face of everything. And actually, there's so much pressure heaped on him because he almost becomes the face of a new Brazil and a new opportunity for Brazil as a country to kind of be successful and, and forge ahead. And I guess if you've got this kind of person who's associated with having said, oh, don't play Pele, well, then that's all going to be brushed under the carpet from a PR point of view very quickly because nobody wants there to have ever been any doubt that people at the FA were, were doubting whether they should play this kind of demigod who's almost like become, you know, become Brazil. So I think he probably suffers from that. I mean, absolutely fascinating topic to, to kind of delve into. I'm really glad we got the chance to, to do it because I think, um, I think his work really justifies, yeah, really justifies a discussion like this. Um, hope that, uh, the listeners have kind of enjoyed it as as, as much as we have. It's been a slight break from our regular format, but yeah, we felt like it was um, really worthy of, of that kind of uh, break. Um, Luke, thanks so much again for your, for, for your time. Um, that is about all we've got time for this week. Um, thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Um, we'll be back, hopefully with Misha, in a couple of weeks. So uh, until then, take care.